Well, hey, welcome to First Church. If you're new, my name's Chad, and we are so glad, whether you are here on site or online, that you chose to worship with us for this Mother's Day. I just looked, and online we've got a bunch of people worshiping with us. I know we have the Bolins who are in Branson right now. I think Ashley and her family, yeah, they got some fans here. Ashley and her family, they're on the way to move back a college student from Norman. So we are so excited that all of you guys from all over the country are worshiping with us, and I'm especially excited to welcome you all as well. So if you would, put your hands together, and let's welcome Welcome one another to worship here today. And it is Mother's Day, so let me just say happy Mother's Day to all of our moms. And here at First Church, we want to recognize not just the moms, but all of the ladies who make our homes and our church just so great. So men, this is the opportunity for you to step up, okay? So let's go ahead, men, and let's give it up for all the ladies who are here today. Yeah. Now, here's the thing, man. They're going to want you to step up in more ways than just that today, okay? Just want to let you know. But we do appreciate all of our moms, all of our ladies. And if you are uh, a lady, you can, on the way out the door today, you can pick up a little gift we have for you. It's not much, uh, but it is something sweet, so you'll probably enjoy it. So uh, we hope that you will do just that. And I'm excited to continue on in our series, Hacked, because we don't want for Satan, our enemy, to hack what God intended for our good. And specifically in this series, we're talking about relationships because we know it's easy for Satan to do that if we're not careful. Now, whether you're a mom or not, if you spend any time around kids, you know that little kids can be really unpredictable, especially when you bring them out in public. They will say things and do things that you wouldn't expect for them to say and do. And I saw these videos a while back of some moms who filmed their kids when they took them shopping, and apparently their kids had some trouble distinguishing between a store mannequin and a real human being. Take a look at these clips. I love those clips, and I love them not just because they're funny and cute, they are that, but also because they illustrate a pretty important life truth, and it's this. God created us to be relational beings. See, we were never created to do life alone. We were never created to do life in isolation. God created us to do life with him and to do life with one another. He wove within the fabric of our DNA the need for connection. And so as we follow him and as we do life with him, he expects for us to do it together with one another because God knows that in life, we are better together. We are stronger together. That's what the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man, pity the person who falls down and has no one to help him up. 
God knows we are stronger together. But our enemy, Satan, also knows the opposite of that is true. That when we isolate ourselves, when we cut off deep, meaningful relationships, or when we live with relationships that are just merely superficial, surface level, we are weaker than what God intended us to be. And I think in our culture today, Satan is doing a pretty good job making us weak in that way. In fact, there was a study that came up by Harvard just last year, 2021, that stated this, 61% of young adults in the U.S. feel serious loneliness. Not moderate loneliness or somewhat lonely. They feel serious, lasting loneliness. This same study said that two out of five adults in general feel serious loneliness. Now, it's been said that we're the most connected generation ever, and I guess that's true when it comes to technology and social media and stuff like that. But how is it that we are the most connected generation ever with people, and yet we feel so lonely, so isolated? Maybe it's because of this truth, because our relational health isn't determined by the number of connections we have, but by the depth of our commitment that exists within those relationships. You see, connection without commitment quickly fades away. Connection without commitment disappears when things get tough, when life gets rough. And that's why the Bible teaches us that a true friend, well, a true friend loves at all times. And when it says all times, it means all times, both the good times and the bad times and the in-between times. A true friend, a real friend, loves at all times. And I wonder today, do you have a friend like that? Because here's the thing. We are going to have bad days. We all experience them. You know why? Because we all deal with problems in life. Let me just ask, by a show of hands, how many of you guys started this worship service today and you're facing some type of problem, big or small, in life? Anybody facing some type of problem, big or small, in life? Yeah, look at all the hands, okay? How many of you are sitting next to your problem right now? No, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Don't raise your hands. You all raise your hands. Come on. It's Mother's Day, guys. Man, show the love here. All right. We all have problems, big and small. And probably somebody right now listening to this message is dealing with a problem when it comes to their finances or their physical health or their relationships or friendships or family life. Maybe they have a problem right now when it comes to anxiety and stress. Maybe you're dealing with problems in school or at your place of work. Whatever it is, we all have this in common. We all face problems on a regular basis. And God knows that one thing that can help us through those dark days is a godly friend who can come alongside us and help us remember to see his bigger picture. But here's the thing. In order to have a friend like that, in order to have a friend, as Proverbs 17 says, who loves at all times... You have to be a friend like that. 
And that's tough because loving, well, loving when it's easy is really hardly loving at all. A true friend loves at all times. And that's what we see in a very well-known passage, a very well-known story in the Old Testament. And it's found in the eighth book of our Bible. It's the book of Ruth. It's a story of two unlikely friends. It's a story about a mother-in-law named Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who were close, committed, godly friends. And because Naomi is the mother-in-law to Ruth, that's why I say it's an unlikely friendship. But it's still a great example of a godly friendship. And I want to look and see what we can learn from this example in Scripture today. So their story begins like this, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Let's hit pause right there before we go any further. This statement here not only tells us about the time in which this story takes place, but it also tells us the temperature of the culture at this time. Because the days of the judges, that was a chaotic time, spiritually speaking, for the Israelites. Also, politically speaking, for that matter. This was the period of time when the Israelites, they lived in the promised land. They already inhabited the promised land, but they didn't have a king yet. And so God would send judges to rule over the people. But the people were often rebelling against God. And this was kind of the ongoing cycle. The people would get comfortable in the promised land, in this land flowing with milk and honey, and then they would forget about God. And they would forget about God, and some problem would arise. God would try to wake them up or get their attention. Sometimes a judge would come on the scene that God would send in order to wake them up. And eventually the people would get so desperate that they would cry out to God for help. God would then rescue them, sometimes through the judge that he had sent. And then the people would repent and turn back to God, and their circumstances would change. But then when everything calmed down, the people got comfortable again, and they forgot about God again, and they rebelled against him again and again and again. It was an ongoing cycle. That's the situation that we're in as we begin the book of Ruth, the days of the judges. In fact, at the end of the book of Judges, it describes the culture in that day like this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they didn't give a thought to what God wanted. They just did whatever seemed right to them. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like some people who live in our culture today? That was the situation that we find ourselves in as we begin to read Ruth chapter 1. So let's go on and read what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Some good names for some kids, by the way, if you're thinking about having a baby. Great names here. But So what we find out is we have this man named Elimelech, and he lives in Judah. He lives in the promised land in a town called Bethlehem. You've probably heard of Bethlehem before, but this is long before Jesus was born. It's a small little town, about 200 people. That's where he and his wife Naomi lived with their two boys. 
But the Bible tells us that at this point there was a famine in the land. And if you were an ancient Hebrew, this would have been a signal that something was going on. Because way back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, before the Israelites ever inhabited the promised land, God said, listen, I'm going to give you this land of promise. It's going to be a land flowing of milk and honey. And when you get there, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to provide for you. And you're not going to have to worry about your provisions. But if you forget about me and you rebel against me, then I'm going to dry up the rain, there's not going to be a harvest, and there's going to be famine in the land. And so, when an ancient Jew all of a sudden realized there was a famine in the promised land, the land where God told them to be, that means something's up. Something's not right. The people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Now, every time that there's a problem or situation, a disaster or famine in our day and age, does that mean that God is trying to necessarily wake us up? No, he could be, but that's not how he always works today. This was a promise that was under the old covenant for those living in the promised land. But they knew this promise. And so, Elimelech and Naomi and their boys, they have a choice to make. Do they stay in the promised land where God has told them to live, where God wants them to be? Remember, God made that promise to Abraham, this is where I want my people to live. And do they try to bring about revival and try to influence the culture around them so that the people will turn back to God and their situation can change? Or do they get out of Dodge, try to find another place where there's not a famine, take the easy way out? That's what Elimelech and Naomi did. They went to Moab. Of all places, Moab, they were the sworn enemies of the Israelites. The Moabites, they were a people who didn't believe in the one true God. They were evil. They were wicked. They were corrupt. They hated the Israelites. And that's where Naomi and Elimelech go because they had a better economy what they did because they thought in the moment that was easier and one thing we learn over and over again in scripture is this the easy way isn't always the best way what's easy isn't always what's right what's best what God wants for us oftentimes what seems easier in the moment leads to greater destruction in fact Jesus gives us this warning he says in the gospel of Matthew Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The majority of people are going to choose the easy way. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't fall in line with them. Go against the flow and do what God wants you. Because in the moment, it may look like the harder decision. But it's what is best for you. It's what will lead you away from the destruction that everyone else is headed toward. And so Elimelech and Naomi, they believe the lie that there's a shortcut. There's an easy way out to happiness. And so many people today in our culture believe the same thing. Satan tries to convince us, hey, there's a shortcut to happiness. It's in things. It's in stuff. It's in popularity. It's in other people. There's a shortcut to happiness. Just go and try to find it that way. And what happens by us not doing it God's way, doing life God's way, we just end up experiencing more and more pain. And so what happens is we see that Elimelech and Naomi, they, they end up choosing the easy path 
and they don't end up getting what they thought they were going to get. It kind of reminds me, I coach my kids' soccer teams. I've talked about this before, and the other night I was having practice with my son's team, and we have this one little kid on our team. He's an awesome kid. He's a lot of fun to be around. He's a good soccer player, really, but he hates to run, and he tells me this all the time, that he just, he hates to run, and so it was the beginning of practice. We were doing a little conditioning, you know, running around the field, and he was just walking. Like, everybody else is running, but he's walking, and I said, come on, buddy, let's go, you know, stay with your team. He's like, I don't want to. I was like, but you need to in order to get in shape, and he said, I don't want to be in shape. And I was like, I know you don't want to be in shape, but this will pay off when it comes to playing in a game. You need to be in shape in order to be at your best. And he looked at me and he goes, is there a way that I can be in shape that doesn't involve running? And I'm like, no, you got to run, man. You got to run. Get out there and go. But isn't that how we are sometimes? We're like, hey, God, we know you're saying this. We know what you want, but isn't there an easier way? Isn't there a shortcut? Naomi and Elimelech choose the shortcut. And so they go off to the land of Moab where they are strangers living in this land. And once they get there, what we find out is that tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. We're not sure how he died, but he dies. So now Naomi is living in a foreign land where she doesn't know anybody, doesn't have any friends or family, raising her two boys. And it's not just any land, it's an evil, wicked place. Now, Malon and Kilion, they end up marrying Moabite women. And you might think that's a good thing. They marry a woman named Ruth and Orpah. You might think that's a good thing, but here's the thing. God's law had commanded them not to marry Moabite women. It had nothing to do with race, but it was about their beliefs. What God was saying is don't marry somebody who doesn't believe in me because that's not going to be the foundation for a good family or a good marriage. Don't do that. Marry somebody who believes in me. And apparently they ignore that and they married who they weren't supposed to. And they were supposed to just live in Moab for a short period of time, but they end up staying there over a decade. It's amazing how we think, hey, I'll just do this for a little while, God, and then I'll change. And then we get stuck there. And that's what's happening here. And after 10 years of living there, we see that the two sons, Malon and Kilion, die. Again, we're not sure why. It doesn't tell us. We don't know if there was some disease that struck them or maybe there was some other tragic accident. I don't know. But they die, and now Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law in a foreign land surrounded by a very immoral people. It's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and something that we can also pick up on by reading between the lines, notice that her sons were married for 10 years, and there's no grandchildren, which was a big deal in this day. No more grandsons to carry on the family line or to work or anything like that. No granddaughters either. It means there's probably fertility issues here. And so they're stuck because in this day and age, in order to hold a job that could support and provide for your family, you had to be a man. I'm not saying that's right. It's just the way that it was in this day. And so they would be left in this culture to a life of poverty. That's what they're headed toward. And so Naomi, she gets word that the situation back in Judah has changed. Back in the promised land, it has changed. And so this is what happens. 
It says, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now, this word return is a key word in this, in this book. In fact, in the Hebrew, that word return will end up show, it will show up 11 different times in the first chapter of Ruth. It's an important word. God wants us to pay attention to it because Naomi's return was more than just her going back to her homeland. She's returning to God. She's returning to God's people. She's been living in a distant land for over a decade, away from God, away from God's people, away from the worship of God, and now she is returning. And it gives us some hope that her situation can change. I mean, I think about that passage in Joel when it says this. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's the promise that we get from Scripture, that even when we live at a distance from God for an extended period of time, even when we live in a distant land for an extended period of time, and we live a life that's surrounded by sin, there's always an opportunity for us to return to our God. And when we return to him, he welcomes us with open arms. In fact, he's waiting for us. And so, Naomi returns. And she's got her two daughters-in-law. And as they get ready to make this long journey, she turns to them and she says, you girls need to stay here. I love you and I can't provide for you. There's no future with me. Because I can't provide for you another son that could marry you, which was typical in their culture. There's not even a grandson for you to marry. And not only that, I don't have a husband that can take care of us. You all need to stay here in Moab. Go and find a man from your own people and get married and start a new family, start a new life. Get a fresh start here in Moab. And so after some convincing, Orpah decides to do just that. Orpah doesn't want to. She loves Naomi, but she decides to return to her own people. But Ruth doesn't. And listen to what Ruth says to Naomi. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Now those are some strong words of commitment. And I bet you've probably heard those words quoted before. Anybody ever heard those words quoted at a wedding before? Anybody seen them? Yeah. Or maybe you've seen them on like a Valentine's Day card or something like that. Probably. But here's the thing. In the original context, the first time those words were ever said... It was between a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. Now, let me just see. How many of you guys have ever heard a daughter-in-law say that to her mother-in-law? Anybody? No hands. I didn't think so, okay? That's why this is an unlikely friendship. But it's a great example of friendship because this is what I like to call second-mile friendship. This is a friendship that has shut the back door. This is a friendship that says, no matter what happens, no matter where we go, no matter what we're going to experience, I will be by your side. Your God will be my God, and where you die, I'm going to die right beside you. I am with you, no matter what, until the very end. 
And what I have found is that these types of friendships, relationships, are pretty rare in our culture today. See, there are a lot of what I like to call if friends in our culture today. And by if friends, I'm talking about people who put conditions on their friendship. I will be your friend if you meet my conditions. I will be your friend if you do what I want for you to do. I will be your friend if you look and dress a certain way. I will be your friend if you're part of a certain social group. I will be your friend if you never make me mad, if you never disappoint me, if you never hurt me. I will be your friend if you do this for me or do that for me. I will be your friend if. What the Bible is telling us is that we need friends in our lives who are even if friends. And by even if friends, I mean people who say, I'm going to be your friend, I'm going to be there for you, even if things get bad, even if you lose everything, even if you make a big mistake, even if we disagree, even if you're not successful, even if you don't do everything I ask you to do, I'm going to be your friend even if. And that's the type of friendship that Naomi and Ruth had. And I have learned the importance of that type of friendship, especially over the past couple years. Because since the world went crazy because of COVID and all that, (laughs) I have learned who my if friends are and who my even if friends are. And my even if friends, they're few and far between, but I cherish those friendships. And I've learned just how much I need them. But here's the thing. If you want an even if person in your life, You have to be an even-if person to others. And so that's what Naomi and Ruth provide for one another. So this is the situation. This is where they are. Naomi is left and Ruth is left. The rest of their family, they've died, and Orpah has turned back to go to Moab. It's just Naomi and Ruth, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, and they head to Bethlehem to Naomi's hometown. Now, I don't have time to read through the rest of the story, but I'm going to summarize it. And as I summarize it, I believe that we can pick up on some key principles, some key steps for what it takes to move from having just superficial relationships, superficial friendships, to deep, meaningful, godly friendships. I think we can learn a lot from the example of Ruth and Naomi. And here's the first thing that I think we can learn. We need to be people who can be counted on in every season. You need to be someone who can be counted on in every season. That's what we want from our friends. We want our friends to be there for us in every season. We want to be able to count on them because we know that who we count on determines our future, right? But here's the thing. In order to have that type of relationship, you've got to choose yourself to be someone who can be counted on in every season. That was Ruth and Naomi. Whenever things got bad and Naomi decides to turn back and go to Jerusalem, I mean, sorry, go back to Bethlehem, that's, we see in that moment, this was a low point. They were headed for a life of poverty. And what does Ruth say? I'll go with you. It's bad right now. There doesn't look to be a whole lot of hope, but I'm going to stick with you. And then when they get to Bethlehem, 
They're going to have to hang out with the poor in order to survive because in this day and age, in their culture, what God told the Israelites to do is when you owned a field and you would go harvest that field, not to glean the outer edges of that field. Leave that for the poor, those who didn't have work, so that they can come and collect the scraps and they could survive off the scraps from the harvest. It was kind of their welfare plan in this day and age. And so when they get there, Naomi is too old to go and do that, to go collect those scraps in the field. So you know what Ruth says? I'll do it for both of us. And Ruth goes and she gets food for her and Naomi so that they could survive. She's there for her no matter what. Naomi knows she can count on her. Now here's the thing. The field that Ruth happens to go to in order to get some food, this field just happened to be owned by a man named Boaz. And Boaz was a distant family member of Naomi's. And Boaz is a wealthy guy, apparently, who also is a bachelor. He's like a middle-aged guy who isn't married, and we think it's because he's a little bit shy when it comes to girls. But he takes an interest in Ruth. We got this single girl who's new, and she's out collecting food. And Boaz takes special notice of her and gives her some extra food. And so when Ruth goes back to Naomi and says how Boaz is taking care of her, Naomi her light bulb comes on and she's like, he likes you, girl, okay? You need to, you need to make sure that you talk to him and, you know, because he's one of our family members. He's one of our kinsmen, kinsmen redeemers. I mean, he could, he could be great for you. And so Naomi starts to give Ruth some advice on how to date Boaz, basically. Now, here's the thing. When Ruth comes back and says, hey, I've met this guy and he's interested in me, maybe, does Naomi say, well, you need to stay away from him because deep down Naomi's thinking, hey, I've had Ruth all to myself and she's my best friend. And if she starts spending all this time with Boaz, then I'm not going to have her by my side anymore. And this is a bad thing because I don't want to lose the one person who's always been committed to me. Does she think that? No, she's happy for Ruth because true friends don't have to be in the center of your success in order to be happy for you. They're happy for you because they want the best for you. So what does Naomi do? She encourages Ruth. She gives her wisdom and advice to help her date Boaz. True friends can be counted on whether it's good or a bad day. They can be counted on to be there for you. That's why in Proverbs 18.24 it says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What I have found is there's something better than having a ton of casual friends. It's having one or two friends you can always count on. The second thing that we see from their example is that true friends are those who lead with grace and land with truth. We sometimes get this backwards, but this is a biblical principle for us to lead with grace and to land with truth. You've probably heard it said that people won't listen to what you have to say until they know that you care, until they know that you love them. That's a biblical principle. And that's what happens in this in this situation as well. Because you see, whenever Ruth and Naomi get to Bethlehem, Naomi is not in a good spot. In fact, listen to what it says. It says in the passage that the whole town was steered because of them when they came back. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Apparently her appearance had changed a lot over these past 10 years. And she says, don't call me Naomi. You know why? Because Naomi means the pleasant one. Don't call me Naomi. I'm not Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Yeah, Naomi was fun to hang around at this point in life, okay? Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Again, she wasn't the life of the party at this point in her life, okay? She's bitter. And here's the thing. Ruth could have said, I don't want to hang around a Debbie Downer all the time. But Ruth knew that wasn't really Naomi. She'd been through a whole lot. And Ruth knew that God had bigger plans for Naomi. So Ruth didn't give up on Naomi. Instead, she encouraged her. She was there for her. She made sacrifices for her because she knew that Naomi didn't have to stay where she was. And that's what grace does. See, showing grace is loving people where they are so they can be where God wants them. It starts with loving them. And that love and that grace motivates them to move on where they need to go, where God wants them to be. And this is a principle that we see in Scripture. In fact, this is the character of our God. It says in the book of Romans, it says that God's kindness leads you toward, towards repentance. See, it's God's kindness, it's His love, it's His grace that motivates us to repent and change our lives. What that means is God starts with grace. He starts with telling us how much He loves us, and because He loves us and has our best interest at heart, He then gives us a new way to live, a way of life that we trust because we know how much He loves us. And sometimes we're quick in our culture to just tell people what to do, but we don't do it in love. And there's a reason why Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we are to be those who are speaking the truth in love. If you want a strong friendship, a strong relationship, you lead with grace and you land with truth. It's not that you abandon the truth. It's not that you never talk about truth. I'm not saying that. But you lead with grace in order to get people to truth. There's one more principle here I think that we see, one more step that I think we see in order to get to a place where we can have a more meaningful friendship, and it's this. We need to be those who seek God's bigger picture together. See, what I love about this passage is early on in Romans, I'm sorry, in, in Ruth chapter 1, we see early on this statement where Ruth says, your God will be my God. See, even though Naomi is not in a good place right now, Ruth still knows there's something real about Naomi's God. She's been around Naomi enough to be interested in knowing her God. Her God is someone who's powerful and very real. And so basically, Ruth is willing to leave her old beliefs in order to follow Naomi's God. And so together, they follow God. They follow God like they never have before. And as they follow God, life doesn't automatically get easier in fact, they have to go through some really tough times. But eventually God starts to work in their lives. They see his hand at work. And God changes their situation so much so that Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. And look at what happens. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. Remember there were some fertility issues? Enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Their situation has totally changed. And it changed because they started going back to God. They returned to him. And isn't this an awesome story about two people who had made some mistakes and came from a sinful past and now their entire, their entire life has been changed because they returned to God. It's a great story. And so basically Ruth ends up having a baby and Naomi has a grandson. Beautiful story. But my question is, why is it in the Bible? Beautiful story, but why is it there? Well, we find out later on. It says, and they named this child, this son, Obed. 
He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, here's the thing. If you were an ancient Hebrew and you were reading this, you would get goosebumps. Because everybody knew who David was. David was the greatest king that ever lived in Israel's history. And the Messiah would come from David's line. Jesus came from David's line. So I want you to understand what's going on here. God takes basically three ordinary people. We've got a widow who has lost everything, who's made some mistakes, who lived in a distant country away from God. You've got a daughter-in-law who grew up in a sinful culture, who never really knew the real God, an ordinary girl who just got caught up in the influences around her. And then you've got a middle-aged bachelor still living in Bethlehem who's shy and afraid to ask Ruth out, but he gets some pushing from Naomi and it all works out. But still, you take these three ordinary people who normally would be lost to history, but God uses these three ordinary people to bring about not only the greatest king in Israel's history, David, but also the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know why? Because no story is ordinary when God's a part of it. And the same is true for you and for me today. See, I do puzzles with my kids sometimes. And if you were to pull out a big puzzle like this and just get a piece of it, and I said, without looking at the picture, guess what this is? You would probably struggle to guess what the puzzle would eventually be, right? But with the bigger picture, you can see what it is. And this is how our lives work. Sometimes we look at the situation we're in right now and we say, God, I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense to me. And God says, just wait. I've got a plan, and if you let me place your life where it needs to be, you'll see how it's part of my bigger picture, my bigger plan. I have with me something else. I have my great-grandmother's Bible. This is a picture of my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather. The family always called them Granny and Paul. (laughs) And I never knew my granny. She died when my mom was pregnant with me. But I knew Paul. He lived several years after her. But they were both godly people. And I remember when I would go over to my grandmother's house, her daughter's house, We would stay in their guest bedroom, and this Bible was in there because after my great-grandmother died, my grandma got it. It sat on a table displayed in this guest bedroom in my grandma's house. And So every now and then I would pick it up and I would look at it. And when you open it up, it's full of markings, you know, writing, underlining, all that stuff, even family history. And so I remember asking my grandma about it one time, and she said, that was my mom's Bible. She used to read from it to me. I just always thought that was really cool. And so when my grandpa passed away not too long ago, they were going through the stuff that was in their house, and my parents asked me if I wanted anything, and there were a couple things that kind of meant something to me, and one of those things was this Bible. I said, if no one else wants it, I'm not going to fight over it, but if no one else wants it, I love to have Granny's Bible. And so the family said it was fine that I have it, and I have it today. And I've read through, I've looked through this Bible several times, looked at some of her notes, and it's just really cool. But I was talking with my mom just the other day, and I was asking some questions about my granny and Paul, like how they meet and all that. And my mom, her granddaughter, said, you know, I can't remember. I, did, I knew it one time, but I can't really remember. And so we're talking about details of where they grew up and all that, and just couldn't remember. 
But my mom said the one thing I do remember is that whenever the grandkids would come over and spend the night with Granny and Paul, we'd spend several nights with them at a time, and all the grandkids, there were a bunch of them, they'd come. She said, Granny would get us ready for bed, and then before we could go to bed, she would gather us all together and open up her Bible and read from it to us. That's a tradition that was carried down to her children, and my mom experienced that. And then my mom carried on that tradition. And when I was a boy, my brother, when we were little, there was hardly a night that we would go to bed before mom would open up the Bible and read from it to us. And it's a tradition that I want to keep going, keep it going with my kids as well. And here's the thing. My granny and Paul, they were common, simple people. They were farmers in Springfield, Kentucky. And one day their names will be lost to history. Nobody will remember any details about their lives. Like nobody will remember probably the details of my life one day as well. In fact, the Bible even talks about this. In Ecclesiastes, it says this, For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. And the days to come, both will be forgotten. It doesn't matter if you're a wise person or if you're foolish. There's going to come a day when all of our names on this earth will be forgotten. But here's the thing, even though one day my great-grandmother's name and her history may be lost, she'll be forgotten. The legacy that she left behind will remain. Because she didn't invest her life in things and stuff and status. She invested her life in people. And her name may be forgotten, but the name of Jesus lives on. I'm perfectly okay if one day my name and my life is forgotten. As long as I leave behind the name of Jesus so that people can continue to find out what life is really all about. Guys, nobody is ordinary when God is part of their life. My granny probably had no idea that she would have a great grandson that would be standing on a stage like this and preaching. But I may not be here today if it wasn't for her example of faith. Today, if I can challenge you to do anything, be the type of friend that goes and tells someone else who needs to hear it that their life doesn't have to be ordinary when they put God at the center of it. Because God can place you into his bigger picture and do extraordinary things through your life. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this day, this Mother's Day, where, one, we recognize our moms, but also, Father, we remember that we're all part of your greater story. And I just pray, God, that we, as your church here in this place, would be the friends, have the relationships that we need to support one another and to remind those around us of your bigger picture. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. What a great challenge, a reminder of how to how to live out relationships the way God's called us to. Hey, uh, we hope you've been blessed today. And if God, you know God's calling you to take a next step in your faith, we'd love to talk to you about that. Love to help you take that step. Like we got to see Natalie do this morning, we would love to see others take that step to follow Jesus, be baptized in Him. Stop by the hub. We'd love to have that conversation with you, all right? Hey, we hope you continue to have a great Mother's Day. By the way, 
If you are a wife who got your husband to wear blue, well played, well played. Hey, we hope you've been blessed today. As we leave this place, let's go be the church. Let's go love Jesus and love like Jesus and take your communion cups with you. Thank you.